are now tuned in to this week's episode of our podcast. Today, we are going to interview some of the greatest and most influential minds in our field. By sharing our collective expertise, we will show you how to harness, control, and use your own skill set to achieve ultimate success and live the life you want. And now, please welcome your host. My name is Elise Hugh. This is TED Talks Daily. Since the United States is rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement today, we've got a big conversation for you on one of the most crucial issues facing humanity. On today's show, hear the U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, John Kerry, in conversation with climate advocate Al Gore about the make-or-break decade ahead of us. They cover the global challenges and what exactly needs to be done to curb emissions and reduce warming. You'll also hear an introduction from Christiana Figueres, the principal architect of the Paris Agreement. This interview is part of Countdown, TED's new global initiative to accelerate solutions to the climate crisis. Get involved at countdown.ted.com. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Fundrise. A truly diversified portfolio needs more than stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. With a track record of earning consistent income and long-term appreciation, successful investors have powered their portfolios with private real estate for decades. Now you can too with Fundrise. Fundrise provides access to diversified portfolios of private real estate with their industry-leading, easy-to-use platform. Go to Fundrise.com slash TED Talks. That's F-U-N-D. R-I-S-E dot com slash TED Talks. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Odoo. Odoo's suite of business apps has everything you need to run a company. Think of your smartphone with all your apps right at your fingertips. Odoo is just like that for business. But instead of an app to order takeout or tell you the weather, you have sales, inventory, accounting, and more all on Odoo. You name the department, we've got it covered, and they are all connected. So go to odoo.com slash TED to start a free trial. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash TED. Today, 19th of February, 2021, at the beginning of a crucial year and a crucial decade for confronting the climate crisis, the United States rejoins the Paris Climate Agreement after four years of absence. Unanimously adopted by 195 nations, the Paris Agreement came into force in 2016, establishing targets and mechanisms to lead the global economy to a zero emissions future. It was one of the most extraordinary examples of multilateralism ever, and one which I had the privilege to coordinate. One year later, the United States withdrew. The Biden-Harris administration is now bringing the United States back and has expressed strong commitment to responsible climate action. The two men you're about to see both played essential roles in birthing the Paris Agreement in 2015. Former Vice President Al Gore, a lifelong climate expert, made key contributions to the diplomatic process. John Kerry, 
was the U.S. Secretary of State and head of the U.S. delegation. With his granddaughter sitting on his lap, he signed the Paris Agreement on behalf of the United States. He is now the U.S. Special Envoy for Climate. Ted Countdown has invited Al Gore to interview John Kerry as he begins his new role. Over to both of them. Well, thank you, Christiana. And John Kerry, thank you so much for doing this interview. I have to say on a personal basis, I was just absolutely thrilled when President Biden, uh, then president-elect, announced uh, you were going to be taking on this uh, incredibly important role. And thank you for doing it. Uh, let me just start by uh, welcoming you to TED Countdown and asking you, how are you feeling as you step back into the middle of this issue that has been close to your heart for so long? Well, I feel safer being here with you. How's that? <laughs> I uh, <laughs> honestly, uh, I feel very uh, energized, very focused. Uh, I think it's a privilege to be able to take on this task. And as you know better than anybody, uh, it's going to take everybody coming together. There's going to have to be a massive movement of people to do what we have to do. So I just, I feel privileged to be part of it, and I'm honored to be here with you uh, on this important day. Well, it's been a privilege to be able to work with a dear friend for so long uh, on this crisis. And uh, of course, uh, on this historic day, when the United States now formally and legally rejoins the Paris Agreement, uh, we have to acknowledge that the world is lagging behind the pace of change needed to successfully confront the climate crisis, because even if all countries kept the commitments made uh, under the Paris Agreement, and I watched you sign it, you had your grandchild uh, with you, I was there at the UN, that was an inspiring moment. Uh, you signed on behalf of the United States, but even if uh, all of those pledges were kept, they're not strong enough to, to, to keep the global temperature increase well below two degrees or below 1.5 degrees and emissions are still rising. So what needs to happen here in the U.S. and globally in order to accelerate the pace of change? Well, Al, you're absolutely correct. It's a very significant day, uh, a day that never had to happen, America re returning to this agreement. Uh, it is so sad that our previous president without any scientific basis, without any legitimate economic rationale, uh, decided to pull America out. And it hurt us and it hurt the world. Now we have an opportunity to try to make that up. And I approach that job with a lot of humility for the, for the agony of the last four years of not moving faster. But uh, we, have to, we have to simply up our ambition on a global basis. Uh, we're, the United States is 15% of all the emissions. China is 30%. Uh, EU's somewhere around 14, 11, depends who you talk to, and India's about seven. So you add all those together, just four entities, and you've got uh, well over 60% of all the emissions in the world, and yet none of those nations are at this moment doing enough to be able to get done what has to be done, let alone many others at lower levels uh, of emission. It's gonna take all of us. Even if tomorrow China went to zero or the United States went to zero, you know full well, Al, we're still not gonna get there. 
We all have to be reducing greenhouse gas emissions. We have to do it much more rapidly. So the meeting in Glasgow rises in its importance. Uh, you and I, we've been to these meetings since way back in the beginning of the 90s with Rio, and even before some of them, parliamentary meetings. And, and we're at this most critical moment where we have a capacity to define the decade of the 20s, which will really make or break us in our ability to get to a 2050 net zero carbon economy. And, uh, and so we all have to raise our ambition. That means coal has got to phase down faster. It means we've got to deploy renewables, uh, all forms of alternative renewable sustainable energy. We've got to push the curve of discovery intensely, whether we get to hydrogen economy or battery storage or any number of technologies, we are gonna to have to have an all of the above approach to getting where we need to go to meet the target uh, in this next 10 years. And I think Glasgow has to not only have countries come and raise ambition, but those countries are gonna to have to define in real terms what their roadmap is for the next 10 years, then the next 30 years, so that we're really talking a reality that we've never been able to completely assemble at any of these meetings thus far. Well, hearing you talk, John, uh, just uh, highlights uh, how painful it's been for the U.S. to be absent from the international effort for the last four years. And it, again, it makes me so happy President Biden has brought us back into the Paris Agreement. Uh, after this four-year hiatus, how, how are you personally, as our climate envoy, planning to approach re-entry into the conversation? I know you've already started it, but what, is there anything tricky about that? Or I guess yeah, everything's well, tricky about it, but how are you planning to do it? Well, I'm planning, first of all, to do it with humility, because I think uh, it's not appropriate for the United States to leap back in and start telling everybody what has to happen. We have to listen. We have to work very, very closely with other countries, many of whom have been carrying, <laughs> carrying the load for the last four years in the absence of the United States. I don't think we come in, Al, I want to emphasize this. I don't believe we come to the table with our heads hanging down on behalf of, of many of our own efforts, because as you know, President Obama worked very hard and we all did, yep. together with you and others, to get the Paris Agreement. And we also have 38 states in America that have passed renewable portfolio laws. And during the four years of Trump being out, the governors of those 38 states, Republican and Democrat alike, continued to push forward in the We're Still In movement. And more than 1,000 mayors, mayors of our biggest cities in America, all have forged ahead. So it's not a totally uh, abjectly miserable story by the United States. I think we can come back and earn our credibility by stepping up in the next month or two with a strong national determined contribution. We're going to have a summit in April, April 22nd. That summit will bring together the major emitting nations of the world again. And because as you recall in Paris, a number of nations felt left out of the conversation. The island states, some of the poorer nations, Bangladesh, others. And, and so we're going to bring those stakeholders to the table as well as the big emitters and developed countries so that they can be heard from the get-go. And as we head on into Glasgow, hopefully 
um, will be building a bigger momentum and we'll have a larger consensus. And that's our goal. Have the summit, raise ambition, announce our national determined contribution, begin to break ground on entirely new initiatives, build towards the biodiversity convention in China, even though we're not a party, we want to be helpful, and then go into the G7, the G20, the UNGA, the meeting of the United Nations in the fall, reconvene and re-energize going for the last six weeks into Glasgow. In my judgment, Glasgow, and you, you'd know this full well, I think Glasgow is the last best hope we have for nations to really set us on that path. And so, you know, one key is, as I said, raising ambition. The other is defining how you're gonna get there. And then the third is finance. We've got to bring an unprecedented global finance plan to the table. And, and uh, I think uh, we're already working with private sector entities. I believe there's a way to, to do that in a very exciting way. Well, that's encouraging. And I, I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But I'm glad you made those points about state and local governments uh, actually moving forward during the last four years. A lot of U.S. private companies have uh, as well. And already I'm extremely encouraged by the suite of executive actions that President Biden has already taken during his first weeks in office, and there's more to come. There's also a push for legislative action to invest in the fantastic new opportunities in clean energy, electric vehicles, and more. Yet you and I have both seen the difficulties uh, of this approach in the past. How can we use all of this activity to well and truly convince the world that America is genuinely back to being part of the solution. I know we are, you know we are, uh, but we've got to really uh, restore that confidence. I think your appointment went a long way uh, to doing that, but what else can we do to gain back the world's confidence? Well, we have to be, uh, we have to be honest and, and forthright, I mean direct, about the things that we're prepared to do. Uh, and they have to be things we're really gonna do. Uh, we just held a meeting uh, a few days ago uh, with all of the domestic entities that President Biden has ordered to come to the table and be part of this effort. This is an all of government effort now. So we will have the Energy Department, the Homeland Security Department, the Defense Department, the Treasury, I mean, Janet Yellen was there talking about how she's going to work and we're going to work together to try to mobilize some of the finance. So I think, uh, you know, we're not going to convince anybody by just saying it, nor should we. We have to do it. And I think the actions that we put together shortly after uh, President Biden achieves the COVID legislation here, he will almost immediately introduce the rebuild effort, the infrastructure components. And those will be very much engaged in building out America's grid capacity, uh, doing things that we should have done years ago to facilitate the transmission of uh, electricity from one part of the country to another, whether it's renewable or otherwise. Uh, we just don't have that ability now. We have a queue of backed up projects sitting in one of our regulatory agencies, which have got to be broken free. And by creating this all of government effort, Al, our, our hope is we're really going to be able to do that. The other thing that we're doing is I'm reaching out very rapidly to uh, uh, colleagues all, all around the world. We've had 
meetings already, discussions with India, uh, with uh, uh, Latin American countries, with European countries, with the European Commission, others. And we're going to try to build as much energy and momentum as possible uh, towards these various benchmarks that I've talked about. And, and it's only, I mean, it's, the proof will be in the pudding. We're going to have to show people that we've got a strong NDC, we're actually implementing, we're passing legislation, and we're moving forward in a collegiate manner with um, other countries around the world. Uh, for instance, I've talked to Australia. We had a very good conversation. Australia has had some differences with us. Uh, we've not been able to get on the same page completely. That was one of the problems in Madrid, as you recall, uh, together with uh, mm. Brazil. Well, I've reached out to Brazil already. We're starting to work on that. My hope is that uh, we can build some new coalitions and, and approach this uh, hopefully uh, in a new way. Well, that's exciting. And I do agree with your statement earlier that uh, the, the COP26 conference in Glasgow this fall it, it may be the world's last best chance. I like your phrase there. Um, from your perspective, what would you list as the priorities for ensuring that this Glasgow conference is a success? I think that perhaps one of the single most important things, which is why we're focused on this summit of ours, is to get the 17 nations that produce the vast majority of emissions on the same page of committing to 2050 net zero, committing to this decade having a roadmap that is going to lay down how they are going to accelerate the reduction of emissions in a way that keeps 1.5 degrees uh, as, a, as a floor alive and also in a way that uh, guarantees that we are seeing the roadmap to get to net zero. I, I will personally be uh, dissatisfied and disappointed if for our children's sake and our, and our grandkids' sake, we can't say that when these adults came together to make this kind of a decision, uh, we, we didn't actually make it. We, we've got to make it. And I think if we can show people we're actually on the road, I think you believe this as much as I do, that, that I mean, you're, even more, you're far more knowledgeable uh, than I am about some of the technologies, and you've helped break ground on some of them. The, the, the pace at which we are now beginning to accelerate, I mean, the reduction in cost of solar, the movement in, in uh, storage and other kinds of things, I'm convinced we're going to find one breakthrough or another. I don't know what it's going to be, but I do know that when we push the curve and we put the resources to work, the innovative, creative capacity of humankind is such that we have an ability to surprise ourselves. We've always done it. When we went to the moon, uh, that's exactly what we did. And people today use products in everyday household use that came out of that quest that you never would have anticipated. That's what's going to happen yep. now. We can move faster to electric vehicles, no question in my mind. We can absolutely phase down coal-fired emissions faster than we are in a plan to do it. So the available choices are there. The test is going to be whether we create the energy and momentum necessary to actually get those choices made. One of the big challenges is one you referred to earlier on finance. Wealthy countries have promised financial assistance to the less wealthy countries to help them out uh, with cutting emissions and to help them cope with the impacts of the climate crisis. But of course, we need to continue to work to meet this 
commitment, especially as countries around the world rebuild their economies in the wake of this pandemic. What are some of the most effective ways in which the wealthier countries can help those that don't have as many resources? And and why is this so important for the world to move forward? Let me answer the last part first. It's so important because it's the only way we're going to get there. I don't believe that any government has either the money or the inclination to be able to do what's necessary here. I believe the private sector, uh, particularly driven by uh, venture capital investment, by the quest to be able to create a product that then can help uh, uh, create wealth and actually provide a a benefit to humankind, uh, drives a lot of things that we've done all through history. And I don't think it'll be any different now. Uh, I think the question is, uh, can we pull together enough nations to leverage a, a uniform approach to the judgment about the kinds of investments that are being made? And I believe that uh, if we can standardize to some degree with disclosure requirements, which Janet Yellen is now seized of that issue, and uh, Europe, there are, there are folks working on that, and European Commission elsewhere, if we could actually find a way to come together and harmonize some of those definitions and the marketplace begins to make those judgments as they qualify risk looking way out, risk because of climate crisis for investing is very, very real. And, and we all understand that. We spent $265 billion in America two years ago just cleaning up after three storms. Maria, Harvey, and Irma. And, and that's crazy. You spend $265 billion to clean up after the storms, but we can't put $100 billion together for the Green Climate Fund. That's what this year has to be about. We've got to break that cycle. And I think business, I'm convinced of this. A lot of people will doubt me and say, have I lost my mind? But I'm convinced the private sector is going to be critical, if not the key, to helping to make this happen. And that will leverage other money. We've, I've talked to the, uh, to the uh, IMF. We'll be talking with the World Bank. We're going to try to bring together our own finance development corporation in America. All of these things can help leverage investment into the sectors that can make the greatest difference to the rapid reduction of greenhouse gases. And I think uh, people are going to get very excited about where this money is going to go and how much this is going to be. And my hope is, in a matter of weeks, to be in a position to make a couple of announcements with respect to that that could be helpful in building some of this momentum. Well, that's great. It sounds like some uh, major news coming in a couple of weeks. And um, it, just one example on the example you used, to uh, the point about businessmen. I have a friend in Australia, Mike Cannonbrooks building a long undersea cable from the Northern Territories of Australia to take renewable electricity to Singapore. Uh, you have uh, made the point about uh, the need for the U.S. to approach this with humility a number of times. Uh, in that spirit, what lessons can a country like uh, ours learn from some of the lower income nations that are already beginning to tackle climate change? Well, I think one of the most important things, Al, is uh, to make sure that central to this 
transformation, to this transition to the new energy economy central to it is environmental justice, is, is, is that we don't leave people behind, that we're not making whole communities the, the, the recipients of the downside of some particular choice, that the diesel trucks, for instance, aren't all being routed through a particular low-income community that doesn't have the ability to make a different political decision. I think it is vital for the developed world to recognize that uh, there are nations, 138 nations or more, way below 1% in terms of emissions. And, and they're looking around, some of them like Tommy Remengensau, the president of Palau, uh, who, who no longer can consider adaptation. He's got to figure out where his people are going to go live, uh, as do other very low-lying areas uh, in the ocean. So uh, that that impact on people is really not known by the vast majority of people who live pretty good lives in a lot of countries in the world. And we have a responsibility to make sure uh, that we're learning the lesson of their lives and of their hopes and aspirations here. Couldn't agree more. And if here in the U.S., if we had paid more attention to the differential impact on black, brown, and indigenous communities, we would have had a, a better early warning of what the whole country was facing. But let me shift subjects uh, and ask you about China. I know that uh, uh, you as uh, you are close friends with Xia Jinhua, as I have been uh, over the years, and I was very happy when he was brought out of retirement to play the lead role for them. Uh, but the U.S. is now in the middle of a somewhat contentious relationship with China. Uh, but successfully solving the climate crisis is going to require collaboration between the U.S. and China. We're the two biggest uh, emitters and the two biggest economies. How can this collaboration be shaped in your view? I know you played a role, as Joe Biden did uh, before the Paris Agreement, uh, in getting our two countries together. Uh, can we do that again? I hope so. I really do hope so, Al. Uh, as you just said, if we, if we can't, I mean, if we don't get China <clears throat> to be cooperating and partnering with the rest of the world on this, uh, we don't solve the problem. Uh, and, and we, unfortunately, we, we see uh, too much investment in China right now, in coal still. We've had some conversations about it. I was on a panel with uh, Xi Jinping uh, several months before the election by the University of California, and we had a very constructive conversation. My hope is that that will continue and can continue, and that China will be just as constructive, if not more so, in this endeavor than they were in 2013 as we began the process to build up to uh, Paris. Well, that, that relationship uh, is absolutely crucial. But in order to cover all the ground I want to cover here, I, let me shift again and ask you, what role do you expect that big corporations and also smaller businesses uh, will play in moving this green transition forward? I, I think they're the biggest single players in it. I mean, governments are important, and governments can and have made a difference with uh, tax credits. For instance, our solar tax credit made an enormous difference, and it will make one going forward. And even in the middle of COVID, we've been able to hold on to that. But, uh, but we need to grow those kinds of efforts. But in the end, 
uh, it's not going to be government cash that makes this happen. It's going to be the private sector investment that is coming in because it's the right thing to do, because it's also smart investing. And, and the truth is, you can talk to many of the, and you have, you're one of the investors, actually, Al. You, you, you and others have proven that you can invest in this sector of uh, dealing with climate or environment or sustainability, uh, whether it's ESG or it's pure climate, uh, there are ways to have a good return on money. And during the last couple of years, we had something like 13 to $17 trillion sitting in, in parked banking uh, situations around the world in net negative interest. In other words, they were paying for the privilege of sitting there, uh, not, not invested in something. Uh, and, and so I think there's just a massive opportunity here. And, and most of the CEOs I'm talking to at least now are increasingly aware of the potential of these uh, alternatives. And you, I mean, you were an early, I think, I don't know if you invested in it or not, but I know you're involved with Tesla or have been. I mean, Tesla is the most highly valued automobile company in the world, and it only makes yeah. one thing, electric car. If that isn't a message yeah. to people, I don't know what is. I wish I had invested in Tesla, John, but I'm a huge fan of Elon Musk and what he's doing. I'm also a huge fan of Greta Thunberg. And I, I'm just curious uh, what you think in practical terms is the real impact for change coming from these youth movements like Fridays for the Future? I think it's been gigantic and, and spectacular and in the best traditions of what young people do and have done historically. I mean, as you recall, uh, in America, at least in the 1960s, uh, it was young people who drove the environment movement, uh, uh, the peace movement, the women's movement, the civil rights movement, and, and um, they were willing to put their lives on the line. And Greta has been uh, just unbelievable in, in, in the way in which she has held adults accountable. And it has created this wonderful movement. I've met so many young people, many of whom have worked uh, in one fashion or another with me in the last few years, who were brought to it from Fridays for the Future, or from the Sunrise Movement, or, uh, you know, it, it, it's all that focused, youthful idealism and energy, uh, and it demands to be heard. And I think uh, all of us, uh, I mean, we, we should be ashamed of ourselves that we have to have people who are then 16 or 15 not going to school to get our attention. I mean, what the hell is the matter with adult leadership that's not leadership at all? So I salute her and all the young people who put themselves on the line. And I, but I invite them, you know, it's not enough. You've got to then, and I said this during the course of the election, where I hope we created a lot of new voters and I think environment, uh, specifically climate uh, crisis, became a real voting issue this year, just as it was yeah. back in the 1970 when we created the EPA and a, the Clean Air Act and a host of things. And it proves that that kind of activism is necessary. And I, and I hope we're, we're going to keep young people at the table here and, and uh, finish the job. That's the key now. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And a, another big movement that's having an impact is the environmental justice movement. You referred to it earlier, and I'm so glad that President Biden is putting environmental justice at the heart of his climate agenda. 
It, it might be good if I could ask you to just take a moment and, and tell people why that is such an important part of this issue. Well, I think uh, it's it's important part of this issue for many reasons. Uh, the most basic is just moral, you know, what is morally right, um, and and how do you redress a wrong that has for too many years uh, held people back, killed people by virtue of disease or uh, other things, and 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 resulted in a basic inequality and unfairness in society. And I think you share a feeling as I do, Al, that that. Uh, uh, the fabric of a nation is built around certain organizational principles. And if you're holding yourselves out as a nation to be one thing, i.e., you know, uh, equal opportunity and fairness and, and all people created equal and equal rights and so forth, if that's what you hold out there and it isn't there, eventually you get such a cynicism and such a backlash built up into your society that it doesn't hold together. To some degree, that is what we're seeing around the world today, is, is this nationalistic populism that is driven by this heightened inequality that's come through globalization that has mostly uh, enriched uh, already fairly well-off folks. Uh, and, and so if it's the upper 1% that's getting all the benefits and the rest of the world struggling to survive and they also have COVID and then you tell them we got to do this or that in terms of uh, climate, um, you're, 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 you're walking on very thin ice in terms of that, that uh, sacred uh, relationship between government and the people who are governed. Uh, it's not just an American phenomenon. You see it in Europe, you see it in alternative movements in various countries. Uh, and uh, I think it is the great task of our generation not only to deal with climate, but to restore a sense of fairness to our economies, to our societies, uh, to our world. And, and, and that is uh, part of this battle, I think. Yeah, I agree. And uh, another um, common source uh, of uh, uh, opposition uh, to what governments are doing now has to do with the fear, both in the U.S. and elsewhere, on the part of some, that jobs might be lost in this transition toward uh, a, a green economy. Um, you and I both know that there are a lot of jobs that can be created, but uh, let me put the question to you. How can we approach this green transition in a way that lifts everybody, everyone up? That is one of the most important things that we need to do, Al. And, and we can't lie to people. We can't say that some of the dislocation doesn't mean that a job that exists today might not be the same job in the future and that that person has to go through uh, a, a process of getting there. And, and we need to make certain that they're not, nobody's abandoned. We need to make certain that there are real uh, mechanisms in place to help folks be able to transition. And I just spoke the other day with Richie Trumpka, the head of the American Federation of Labor. Uh, and, and he's been very focused on this. And we agreed to try to work through how do we integrate that into this transitional process so that we're guaranteeing that uh, you don't abandon people. Now, one of the things we need to do is go to the places where there have been changes and there will be change, southeastern Ohio. Kentucky, uh, West Virginia, 
uh, you know, if, if the marketplace is making the decision, and it's, by the way, it's not government policy, it is the marketplace that has decided, in America at least, not to be building a new coal-fired plant. So where does that miner or where does that person who worked in that supply chain go? We have to make sure that the new companies, that the new jobs are actually going into those communities, that the coal community country, the coal country as we call it in America, uh, is actually being immediately and directly and realistically addressed in this uh, to make sure that people are not uh, abandoned and left behind. That is possible, that is doable. Historically, unfortunately, there have been too many words and not enough actual, uh, not enough actually implementation and, and process. Uh, I think that can change and I'm gonna do everything possible in my, my ability to, to make sure that we do change it. Well, that's great. And uh, another part of the context within which you are uh, taking on this enormous challenge is the COVID pandemic, which has exposed the cost of ignoring pre-existing systemic risks, uh, inequalities, and sustainability. And now as we start to come out of this pandemic, how can we avoid sleepwalking back into old habits? Well, that's, uh, that's probably the toughest of all. I mean, there's a natural proclivity for people sometimes to just choose the easiest way. And uh, clearly some people already have uh, and, and will resort to that. I think the key will be in President Biden's proposal for the Build Back, which will actually fight hard to direct funds to the investments and to the sectors where we want to see uh, a, a, a responsible build back. There's another aspect, and I think that can be done, Al. I really feel that. Um, for instance, uh, someone who's making a car today in South Carolina where BMW has plants and just to pick one place or Detroit, GM is obviously going to make this shift. They just announced it. The people building the car today are still going to have to put wheels on a car, build the car, put the seats in, do everything else. It's just that instead of an internal combustion engine, they can be quickly trained to be able to put the platform in for the batteries and the uh, engines, the cells, et cetera, that will drive the car, the motors. That, that, that's one way of dealing. Others are that there's, there's new work in, in some ways. We have to lay transmission lines in America. We do not have a grid in the United States, as you know. We have an East Coast, West Coast. Texas has a, its own grid, north of part of America, but there's a huge hole in the country. You can't send energy efficiently from one place to another. We could lower prices for people and create more jobs in the build out of all of that kind of new infrastructure. Not to mention the things that you and I, you know, uh, they're gonna be things that, that we can't name today. Some negative emissions technology uh, that's gonna grab CO2 out of the atmosphere and and do something with it, like in Iceland, where they put it into the rock, put a mix it with liquid, and it turns into stone. I mean, there are all kinds of different things people are exploring. Those are new jobs. I just want to say, since we've come to the end of our, our time uh, for this uh, conversation, uh, thank you again for taking on this crucial challenge on behalf of the United States of America uh, and enabling the U.S. to restore its traditional role in trying to bring the world together. 
And I know that everybody listening to this conversation uh, sends you their best wishes and hopes for all the success possible in this new uh, work, uh, John. Thank you so much for joining TED Countdown, and we wish you the very best. Can I reciprocate for a minute? First of all, I, I want to thank you uh, for your extraordinary leadership for years. I can remember when you were leading us in the Senate on this, and you've done so much since. And I am personally delighted to be working with you on this again and look forward to the next months. And, and together with a lot of other folks, uh, let's get this done. The real thought leaders are the ones who turn ideas into action. Project Management Institute has partnered with TED to showcase people who are changing the world and turning ideas into reality. Project leaders with the powers to connect ideas and cultures and communities around the world. TED at PMI. Action and impact. Ideas curated by TED and turned into action by PMI. Together, a celebration of doers. Impacting communities impacting the world. Watch these TED Talks at pmi.org forward slash TED. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Odoo. Meet Dan. Dan built a bike company, but his old software made it impossible to keep up with demand. It took so much time just to make things work. It was essentially sucking the life out of him. Then he found Odoo. Odoo automated his business by integrating inventory, manufacturing, accounting, and marketing. Now he can meet the demand and grow even faster with the e-commerce app. Thanks to Odoo, Dan doubled his revenue and can focus on what matters. Go to odoo.com slash TED to start a free trial. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash TED. Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. Hey, everybody. The deadline to get your application in for the spring vintage of Village Global Accelerator is March 1st. Companies that have been through the accelerator have raised from some of the best venture funds in the world, like A16Z, Lux, Spark, Bessemer, Founders Fund, and many more. Learn more and apply at villageglobal.vc accelerator. Hey, everybody. Eric Tornberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everyone. This is Ben Kaznoka, a partner here at Village Global. And we're really excited today to have Elliot Schmuckler, one of the most talented product and engineering executives in Silicon Valley, on the show today. Elliot has helped build several iconic companies in Silicon Valley like LinkedIn, Wealthfront, and Instacart. Today, we're going to learn some of the key lessons from Elliot's time working on product and engineering initiatives for these companies and discuss how he decided to start his own company, Anomalo, which we at Village Global are really proud to back. Elliot, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. Great to be here. Elliot, you were one of the first pioneers of growth marketing techniques uh, at LinkedIn in 2008. Uh, today, of course, um, growth marketing, growth hacking, these are you know, entire industries of, of, uh, of thought leadership and, and, and people who specialize in these areas. But you helped really develop some of these early techniques. 
would love to start just by hearing your journey in the field of, of growth marketing and, and, and growth hacking. What were some of your initial insights when you were at LinkedIn and how have you seen the sort of canon of thinking around how consumer internet properties grow? How has that sort of thinking evolved over the, in the dozen or so years uh, since you were an early pioneer? Yeah, for sure. And I want to give a, a, a little credit. Thank you for your nice words, Ben. But in truth, when I started at LinkedIn, uh, you know, Reed Hoffman, the founder, had already thought about this idea of viral growth, this idea of really measuring growth and using quantitative methods to help the company grow faster. And so he had hired many people into the company that that had this worldview that wanted to collect data and wanted to use metrics and wanted to use experimentation. And they hadn't fulfilled all of those ideas at the time, but it was actually a pretty inspirational place to learn about growth and to try to synthesize some of the early ideas of how you could grow products like LinkedIn and modern consumer internet products. Uh, and so I'm glad you didn't use the the term growth hacking that much because- I only mentioned it a couple of times. <laughs> yes, only a couple of times. And I realize it's a term that's that's very popular, but you know the, the key idea of what we did at LinkedIn and what I've done since then is what the industry now will term something like product-led growth, right? The idea that you're changing or improving or optimizing your product to get it to grow faster. You can, of course, layer in marketing on top of that to give you even faster growth. You can layer in sales on top of that for certain companies to give you even faster growth. But the discipline of growth as I see it is this idea that on the modern internet, internet with modern web and mobile products, there's actually a lot that you can do in the product itself to get it to grow faster, uh, regardless of how you're doing marketing and sales or uh, anything else. So what's an example of a, of a product-led growth initiative in, in that, from one, one of the companies you've worked at? Yeah. So for example, if you make it easier to sign up for a product, right? if you lower the friction from thinking the product is a good idea to actually signing up, uh, you're going to make your product grow faster. And that's an easy one. And what I figured out at LinkedIn is there are actually three categories of things you can do with your product to make it grow faster. One is the first one that I just mentioned, which is reducing friction. Can you make it easier for people that are interested in your product to actually sign up, to get value, to take the kind of actions that will keep them engaged with your product? The second one is increasing incentive. You know, can you provide a better reason for people to actually use and continue to use your product? You know, can you find a way to generate more value for them with your product offering? And very often it's not that you're generating more value through the product in the sense of changing the value that the product provides. Often it's just better communicating the value that the product will provide so that people have a greater need uh, a greater desire to adopt your product. And the third one is what I call increasing exposure, uh, which is, can you give users out there on the internet or in your product itself more opportunities to engage and discover your product? And so advertising is a classic way that companies increase exposure of their products, but in the product-led growth work, you might think about something like SEO, getting more of your product's content into search engines as a way of increasing exposure. Or you might think about 
when people are in your product, you know, using in-product promotions, things that pop up and say, hey, you should take this action as a way of increasing exposure of key actions that you might want your users to take to generate growth. What are some of the specific examples of would be from LinkedIn or Wealthfront or Instacart that might be sort of fun surprises for folks that 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 within the product in terms of how it was built led to unexpected growth. So yes, keep making the sign up process easier makes sense. And of course, there's a lot of nuance to how to actually do that with with metrics and so yes. on. Um, so I don't mean to understate that as a the science of that. But I remember, you know, from our, from, and for fo- those who don't know, I, I worked at LinkedIn for a couple of years and I remember hearing stories, I think it was before my time about, for example, a sort of progress bar on the profile completion and how, um, you know, showing people that you're only 60% through filling out your profile it makes a big impact on folks completing that task. Or of course, most famously, prob- probably of all of LinkedIn history is the address book upload right. um, to figure out who, who you know who's already on the site. Are there other examples like that that might be lesser known to folks that made a big difference in the growth of the internet properties you've been involved in, Elliot? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of my favorite examples is actually from my Wellfront days. And it it does have to do with folks signing up for Wellfront, but it's a very different take on how we optimized it. So Wellfront, as, as many folks know, is an investment management product. So you don't actually get any value out of it until you deposit money into the product uh, to be managed by Wellfront. And you know, depositing money anywhere, significant amounts of money usually is is pretty cumbersome. It's a pretty high friction thing to do, right? You're moving money between accounts and and, and that kind of thing. And so, you know, we found that we, we couldn't really easily make it simpler. Uh, there were some limits. Uh, and of course, we continued to try and eventually we did. But one of our biggest wins in the early days was actually making it easier for you to resume the process we saw in the data that a lot of folks would start the Wellfront signup process and then drop out of it because, you know, they had something else to do. They got distracted or they needed to think about it more or it was just too many steps to do in one sitting. And then they would come back or try to come back to finish it a few days later, sometimes a week later. And so we had a massive growth win in the early days by just making that return process easier where as soon as they came back to finish the process, we put them in exactly the right place where they could pick up where they left off. Whereas before they were just, you know, dropped off on the homepage and, and tried to find their way back. So it's, it's simple things like that, thinking through, you know, all the, the friction that people have that could be very unusual friction. Like it's hard to get back to where they were before after dropping off. And by, by reducing them, by fixing those problems, you can get a lot of growth. Why don't you like the word, uh, why don't you like the phrase growth hacking? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think growth hacking implies that you're doing small things or, or you're using tricks uh, to get growth, right? Uh, but in reality, typically the biggest growth wins across all the companies I've been at have been pretty large ideas, you know, pretty significant changes. Uh, over time. They weren't hacks. They were, you know, new features and new approaches um, to driving growth. Uh, And they came out of thinking deeply about how growth worked for that company and and how we could accelerate it. So so I think growth hacking really under understates it and makes it seem like you're you're just trying little tricks here and there and you're trying to find that next trick that will get you growth. And that's really not how it works. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And 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 sort of to to that end, the bit the big idea point, and these these can be sort of fundamental strategies that get baked into a, really the DNA of a company and the DNA of a product. That is to think about growth. And, and, and yet there's there's also in parallel, not in contradiction, but there's, of course, this idea of being super quantifiably oriented and right. metrics driven with respect to these different techniques. So you mentioned the the wealth front example of noticing that folks were not, you know, uh, were stopping their sign up halfway through. And if you could create a sort of resume a button, that would increase, you know, completion and how how profound of an impact that was. I love that example. But to to notice such a thing, right, you have to have in place I assume, right, a set of systems that are tracking um, all sorts of user behavior. What what sorts of dashboards and metrics do world-class startups put in place to try to understand where there might be low-hanging fruit to to grow their, their products? Yeah, yeah. The key thing to do, I think, Ben, is not so much the dashboards and metrics, but having people on the team, uh, on the broader team within the company or on the growth team, that actually care about getting to those kinds of insights that are going to dig deep in the data. You only get to dashboards and you only get to these strategies after a long period of actually doing sort of investigations and learning from experimentation and, and seeing what's important that you can then extract into a dashboard. You know, we didn't know that people were dropping off uh, from the Wellfront signup flow you know, day one when I started. And no dashboard that you could put together would think of recording that little bit of information, right? It's just not a not a common thing to think about. Yeah, it's the unknown unknowns, right? You, you wouldn't That's know right. it's a problem. Yeah. That's right. And so you have to dig, right? And you have to analyze every little step in the process. Uh, and you have to launch experiments and learn why did they work, why didn't they work? Right? So we actually launched an experiment. The way we learned about this, we launched an experiment that was completely unrelated. And it worked better than we expected, actually. And we looked into that and we said, oh, there's this population of users that we didn't even count on that this experiment was helping, which are these users that were returning to complete their signup flow. You know, in our estimation of what this experiment might do, we didn't think about that kind of user population. We didn't know they existed. We didn't know they were that massive. And that learning kind of got us on a set of new ideas that said, okay, what can we do for these returning users? This is a large population. Can we make it even better for them? Uh, and of course, that led to this win. So the most important thing is that you're, you're looking at everything. You have folks that are trying to get to the truth of what's happening with growth and how growth is working for the company and what the barriers to growth are. And then they're extracting these insights that eventually you can operationalize and you can extract into dashboards and you can see uh, you know, how many people dropped off this week and came back and how many of them were successful in doing that. Well, it is, it is an interesting uh, point regarding having people dedicated to this, this purpose. You were at LinkedIn, you were the first person to be sort of uniquely focused on growth. Is that right, Elliot? Yes, the company did focus on growth in the early days, uh, in, in the founding days, but at some point they stopped and started focusing on other things. Um, and so uh, I was fortunate to be able to kind of revive uh, and reassemble the growth efforts and, and have a team that was 100% focused on growth. It's interesting because it kind of also reminds me of the you know, the job title data science, data scientists and data science teams. Right? There's some, some of these job titles are 
are new in the last yeah. 15, 20 years. Uh, it makes sense. Technology is, you know, is evolving, changing. And, um, you know, Chamath Paul Hapatia, who was on the podcast um, a few weeks ago talking about angel investing in SPACs, you know, part of his celebrated biography is helping uh, initiate the growth team at Facebook or being the first right. person to put in place that team. And so now all these companies have tons of people who are, you know, focused on growth, but at each company, there has to be someone to do it for the first time and actually put in place that team, right? That's right. That's right. And and now it's everywhere. And it's great to see that everyone has actually discovered the value uh, of, of product like growth. And so certainly every company I know in the Valley has folks thinking about it or, or a dedicated growth team. Let's talk about A-B testing. Um, I know this is an area of of uh, expertise and passion for you, uh, yeah. perhaps because there's, there might be a lot of misconceptions. So first tell us what is, what is good AB testing practices look like in a, especially a consumer internet startup. And then, uh, what misconceptions do folks have uh, when this topic comes up? Yeah, absolutely. And, and let me start with the biggest misconception. So the biggest misconception I've seen is thinking that AB testing is about, you know, small changes or small ideas. And I actually traced this. I think there was an article, I forget the publication, it might have been Forbes or Fortune or something like that a long, long time ago. There was an article about Marissa Mayer at Google being presented with a design for a new product that used a particular blue color. And then her feedback was, well, why don't we test 100 shades of blue to find the right blue? for this product. Yeah, that is a legendary story. I've, I re- I've read that story too. It's, it's, it's memorable. <laughs> yes, yes. It's super memorable. And I can't tell you how many times I've run into folks in Silicon Valley that think that is an example of kind of modern A-B testing and experimentation, that you're testing 100 shades of blue or, you know, 50 shapes for your button, right? Or, or 20 colors of links or, or whatever it is. At, at least you didn't ask for... F- for testing 50 different shades of gray, because that would have been too on the nose. Right, right, exactly, that's funny. But that actually is a, is a, is a pretty ridiculous example. Uh, you know, it might make sense for Google to test 100 shades of blue, because at Google scale, even a minor difference, you know, 0.1% difference uh, in something they care about because of a different shade of blue might make, might make a big difference, right, to the company. Uh, but in your typical organization, you know, even if you had the bandwidth and time and resources to test a hundred shades of blue, and one of them had a 1%, you know, one shade was 1% better than the shade you had originally chosen or the average shade, it just doesn't make a difference, right? You've just spent a lot of resources and a lot of time for a very, very small win. And so, Early in my LinkedIn days, I had to kind of negate this notion of what A-B testing was. Uh, and this leads to your first question, what's what's good A-B testing? What's a good experimentation process? A good experimentation process is using A-B testing or experimentation in general for two things. One, it's for learning, right? When you launch an experiment, whether it works or it doesn't, you should be learning something. You should be developing an insight into, oh, it didn't work. Why didn't it work, right? Oh, maybe this source of friction that we tried to remove uh, wasn't that big of a deal. Or maybe this page on which we added this placement, this promotion of a feature, maybe this page doesn't get enough traffic to move our metrics. Or even if it did work, oh, why did it work? 
oh, people really like this. They resonate with this. Or, uh, you know, there was an untapped opportunity uh, in a particular segment of people. So the first thing you should be doing with experimentation is really learning. And you can't really learn much in that shade of blue experiment. You know, learning that a particular shade of blue might resonate a little better doesn't give you any insight about your, your users and doesn't give you any follow-up. Well, what can you do with that? Nothing, right? Make other things that shade of blue uh, is probably the best thing you can do. And then the second piece um, of great experimentation is risk management. You know, you might have an idea that you really love that you're really excited about, that you really think is gonna be great. But you know, the truth is you, you never know for sure. And so by putting it out there as an experiment, as an A-B test, you get to confirm whether your intuition is correct and you get to manage the risk of maybe you're wrong, right? Maybe your idea is not the best improvement to the product, or maybe it improves the product for some people, but actually makes it worse for others. All of that you can learn by making it an experiment, by making any idea, every idea uh, that you put out there an experiment rather than just pushing it out and hoping that it works. You know, I think it's a great re reinforcement of the point you said earlier, which is, is becoming now a theme of this conversation, which, which is great, which is, you know, uh, look for big wins. Like the problem with growth hacking, you said as a phrase, was it implies like sort of micro optimizations and, you know, small word changes. Uh, and here we're talking about the, the 50 shades of blue example, sort of be more ambitious and, yes. and, and maybe be more humble. Like you might be missing something really, really big. And I think that's a great takeaway for, for all you know, PMs everywhere. Is there an example of a, of a big insight that you arrived at Elliot in any of your experiences at the aforementioned companies, the ones we've been talking about that came as a result of a sort of ambitious experiment and maybe there's a surprise uh, finding at the end? Yeah, I mean, so many, and it, it's hard to even know where to start, but I'll, I'll try to give a few. So, you know, one that we faced at LinkedIn uh, was LinkedIn you know, from day one was an international product, right? People in all over the world were using it, but the product was only in English. And of course, everyone knows, right? And, you know, everyone knows here is in quotes. Everyone knows English is the language of business and LinkedIn is a professional network. Um, so there wasn't much thought about translating LinkedIn into other languages. And eventually we got it translated into, into a handful of languages just to try it out. You know, at significant expense, you know, a whole new process for localizing strings and all this kind of translators and vendors are a pretty big thing to try. Um, and there was, a, there was a consensus from almost everyone that it probably wouldn't do much. Well, guess what? Every country that launched the language, on average, increased their growth 2x. And when you say that, so the, what you did was, it was the, it was the word LinkedIn, like that, that phrase translated into the local language. No, it was the entire website. Oh, oh the entire website. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's actually yeah. serving the entire product in the localized language. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. So that's why it was such a big effort to undertake. There was a whole new team built to do it, uh, you know, without really uh, kind of an, uh, uh, without really any evidence uh, that this would accelerate growth or this would help the company. And so it was a pretty big bet, but we learned very quickly that it would accelerate growth uh, in every country uh, where, whose language we made the product available in. Uh, and so almost immediately now we could 
we could double down on that. We could say, okay, where are the next 10 languages, 20 languages, 40 languages that we can translate into that would give us accelerating growth? So that's a good one. Let me give you one from, uh, from Instacart, uh, which is kind of fun. Instacart, uh, you know, is a grocery delivery business and it's unusual for an online business in that it has an online component and an offline component, right? Every time you place an Instacart order, it's routed to an actual in-person shopper, right? That's going to fulfill your order. That's going to gather your items and ultimately deliver them to you. Um, and so unlike LinkedIn and unlike Facebook and unlike many other services, you can't just turn on a particular geography uh, or a particular country or state and the product is suddenly works. You actually need you know, partnerships with grocery retailers. You need shoppers on the ground in that geography that will actually fulfill orders. And that means that it's actually pretty expensive to launch a new geography that, uh, and when I started at Instacart, the company was very cautious about the geographies it launched uh, because it was expensive and you could see that expense and you didn't always see the growth benefit from that geography. Some geographies took off and some did not, right, when you launched there. Uh, and so a powerful insight uh, in those days through looking at the data and doing experimentation was, was realizing that we could actually predict which geographies would be hits and which would not. Uh, and also that we could largely automate the process of launching that would make it less expensive. And of course, that allowed us to, to launch more aggressively and launch many more geographies and accelerate the company's growth. So, so, so explain that actually, because it's, it's fascinating. So, so Instacart says only serving San Francisco. Then the next question is, do we serve Pittsburgh or Chicago? What did the data insights unlock that make that decision more effective? Yeah, yeah. So as we were, uh, you know, experimenting on, on growth for Instacart, we noticed an unusual phenomenon. We noticed a phenomenon where every time we launched a market, you know, say we launched Dallas, right, as, as, as an example, the geographic areas around Dallas suddenly started to become more aware of Instacart and were actually hitting our servers asking for the product right? Trying to get Instacart to work for them. And so through launching markets and kind of monitoring them closely and also experimenting in our, in our sign-up flows and collecting more information there, we found this interesting geographic effect that said markets adjacent to ones that we were already in were really, really promising because people wanted the product there, right? They were getting the benefit of the word of mouth uh, from uh, the adjacent market where Instacart already existed. Uh, and so that was a big insight. Yeah, it's a big insight. And, and, it, and it might sound obvious when you say it, but of course, if, if you're thinking, if, you're, if, if the choice is, okay, we're already in Dallas, we're already in San Francisco, should our next city be Chicago or you know, uh, some suburb of Dallas? Right. You're more likely to say, well, Chicago is the much bigger TAM. But in fact, um, sort of no-name cities or second-tier cities on the outskirts of the major cities would be the, it sounds like the, the, the higher ROI expansion path. That's right. That's right. So unusual insight because everyone thinks exactly like you described, well, what's the next city? Whereas the right answer is 
how can we cover more of the concentric circles around Dallas until it stops working, right? Because we already have some infrastructure in place. So the suburb is actually easier than a brand new city. And there's already growing awareness there. We can already estimate demand. Um, and so, yeah, we, we literally converted the company strategy to this, to this model of, of full coverage of geographic areas where we might start in the Dallas city center, but then we would rapidly add every suburb and everything uh, in the surrounding area where, where it made sense. That's fantastic. Maybe zooming out a little bit, Elliot, um, and thinking about people you admire. I mean, you've in your career have had the opportunity to work with a lot of really talented entrepreneurs and executives and, and growth thinkers and doers within the field of product management specifically, although if you want to take a broader aperture, feel free. Uh, who are the product leaders who you particularly admire? Maybe you know them personally, or maybe you only know them from afar. And uh, and why? Yeah, yeah. So maybe an unusual answer, or at least unusual answer to this question. But, uh, you know, the person, the product leader I probably admire most is Jeff Wiener uh, from LinkedIn. Uh, you know, he was the CEO for a long time there. Uh, and I think just stepped back earlier this year. Uh, it might be one of your LPs, uh, Ben. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, he's he's known as a great CEO, as a great leader. He's not, you know, as well known as a great product thinker, but he actually is. He was one of the people that, that made LinkedIn successful by uh, coming in and having amazing product intuition uh, and kind of knowing what a good product is and what a bad product is. And also being quantitative in his approach to product. You know, he wanted us to have dashboards and to have metrics. And he asked us questions about them and reviewed them, you know, every week and tried to get every team to understand how their metrics were moving and why and how they could take their product to the next level. So without necessarily realizing it or, or being painted as such, he was a, you know, a data-driven product leader. Uh, at LinkedIn, and that's what made it, him successful. It's a great point, and I think it is um, knowing Jeff a little as well. I, I do think it's probably one of his the part of his personal brand that's most unknown by the the masses, which is just how extraordinarily data oriented of a CEO he was with respect to product and growth. Um, and I've heard stories from other execs at LinkedIn who would frequently note that you know these obscure sort of automated reports that get sent out, you know, at 12.01 a.m. about different sites and, and yeah. product movements, you know, hours later, Jeff would have a detailed set of questions about what would otherwise seem like obscure points of data. What do you think is the meta skill? Like, so the, you, you use the word intuition, Elliot, with regards to Jeff, and you also talked about his data orientation. And, uh, you know, I'd argue, I guess, great product leaders tend to have a bit of both. I mean, there is this sort of Steve Jobs-esque sort of vision about what something can be irrespective of data, but then there's also an extraordinary discipline and evidence uh, sort of drive. How does somebody develop that? I mean, are you you born that way or can you, do you, do you have to become this more like numerically literate or, or statistically literate? I think you can develop it. And I think it's, it starts from this fundamental drive of, you know, being, very curious about the truth behind things, right? So a lot of folks that gravitate toward math or science, maybe in their in their early education, tend to kind of like those disciplines because 
there's a kind of quest for for truth. You're trying to figure out how something works, right? Uh, you're trying to figure out why things are the way they are. Uh, and so that kind of background pretty naturally translates into, into, you know, what I saw Jeff doing at LinkedIn, what I was doing at LinkedIn, which is you're trying to get to the truth of what makes this product work, right? It's not a scientific truth necessarily. It's not a mathematical proof of how it works, but it's, it's a very similar approach. So I think being exposed to that in your education, coming from that, that sort of more more analytical background or, or having that curiosity for the truth really helps. Uh, and then you mentioned intuition uh, and that can be developed too, you know, believe it or not. And I've helped many product managers throughout my career kind of develop their, I call it product sense. You know, how can you tell with pretty good accuracy, even before you have numbers, whether a product will work or not? right? Whether it will achieve the goals. And it turns out you can develop that by just trying many, many different kinds of products uh, and seeing what works and what doesn't work and, and having this massive library in your head of, of kind of patterns of how products might work and how successful products might work and being able to refer to that library and apply it to new situations. Uh, and that's what Jeff was able to do. Uh, that's what great product managers are able to do. You know, Jeff was able to recall anecdotes and, and things from his time at Yahoo and say, well, we tried something similar to this and here's what happened. And I can apply that to this situation. Um, it, are you using a uh, clubhouse, Elliot? Or have uh, you used I, it? I just signed up. I haven't participated in anything. Yeah. Yet. It's, it's interesting just as the, you know, current consumer product phenomenon du jour. Uh, yes. it, like I, it, it's interesting to me. So many of these apps are, launched by you know awesome entrepreneurs these days and very few gain traction um yeah and it, it's just sort of now of course clubhouse is a bona fide phenomenon but it'd be curious if you put that app in front of you know great product thinkers with great product sense to use your phrase how many of them would have predicted the kind of uptake that the app has gotten so quickly I, you know to be honest with you i think a lot of them would I haven't engaged with the app that much, but I, I've seen its onboarding flows and its growth flows and its notification strategy, right? Uh, you know, I think every Clubhouse user probably sees notifications in the app. They're incredibly compelling, right? Their I onboarding is really creative in the sense of using your your contact graph or your social graph to not just have you invite people to Clubhouse, but also to recognize when they're joining Clubhouse on their own and to kind of pull them in to being active users. Ben, ben Thompson at uh, Stratechery just the other day in a piece about Clubhouse referred to Clubhouse's use of address book data as especially aggressive or some some phrase to that effect. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it was on the spectrum of of light to heavy use of address book data. It was on yes. heavy. And, and I'm not close enough to the... I know this is a this is at the nexus of sort of growth um, and onboarding as well as concerns around privacy and user consent. Um, but it is, Thompson was the first I've seen comment on that particular dimension of, of Clubhouse's strategy. Yeah, well, I noticed it right away. It, it helped that, of course, I was the, the guy using address book data back at LinkedIn uh, with my team. But yes, they, they have definitely learned some of the best patterns, some of the most effective patterns of using address book data from products like LinkedIn, from products like Facebook, 
and they have taken it to a pretty high level. Um, and, and there definitely are a few things they're doing, which, you know, I would say are, are certainly in the gray area of how you can use that. They're effective and I don't think they're, they're particularly offensive or disturbing, but you know, if you talk someone through exactly what's happening, I think some people would get a little bit of the queasy feeling of, Hmm, I don't know if I want my data used that way. Okay. Let's talk about, uh, sort of in, in rapid fire succession. I'm going to take off, uh, the names Elliot of four of your previous employers, eBay, LinkedIn, Wealthfront, and Instacart, and yeah. would love for you just to share one or two key lessons learned from that chapter of of, of your career. Uh, let's start with eBay. Yeah, so eBay was very fortunate to be there early in my career because at the time, at least it was an amazing foundation product management. Learn a lot about product management process, you know, using dashboards to monitor your business and products, you know, how to work with engineering and design eBay was was pretty amazing at the time at, at sort of teaching you those things. I still actually remember eBay product manager training uh, and some of the anecdotes uh, from that experience because they were just so powerful and so useful throughout my career. And, and, and what was the eBay product management philosophy like in a nutshell? Or what was that curriculum? Or, or is it just like the basics of how to do product specs or is there a particular like point of view that they had? No, it was actually all about you know, there was some stuff on product specs, of course, but the 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 magic of the eBay training was all about cross-functional teamwork, right? Now everyone understands that product management is actually a team sport. There might be a product manager, but they're usually partnered with a design lead, an engineering lead, a data scientist these days, maybe a user research lead, and and together they're managing the product eBay understood that from a very early time and actually tried to train you how to work in that scenario and how to get the best outcomes out of that team. Love it. Uh, LinkedIn. Well, LinkedIn, of course, everything I know about growth, (laughs) I learned at LinkedIn. That was just an absolutely foundational uh, place. And uh, like I mentioned, I, I felt like I learned a lot about management and leadership from Jeff. Uh, and that's, that served me well throughout the rest of my career. Wealthfront. Wealthfront, yeah. It's pretty funny on a couple of levels. One, it taught me both how universal approaches to growth are, because Wealthfront is a very, very different product than LinkedIn, uh, you know, much harder to adopt, uh, you know, uh, completely different outcomes. You have to pay fees to use it. It's not free. So it, it both taught me how universal uh, the growth strategies were because we were able to make a lot of things grow very quickly there, but also taught me how much, you know, you have to think about the growth, the unique growth engine of each company in order to really get it to grow faster. You can't just take your playbook from LinkedIn and apply it to Wellfront. You know, some things will work, but a lot of things you have to develop anew by really going deep on how does the Wellfront product work. I think that's the, it's one of the most important ideas actually. And I think in all like sort of philosophy and, and learning and growth in general, which is when you have an experience in life and you learn a lesson, to what extent is that lesson transferable and applicable to a new yeah. experience that you have? Yeah. And some things are indeed universal and transferable. There are some truths about life and business and so on. And then there are sometimes genuinely novel circumstances and actually having had that prior experience can be debilitating 
if you try to over rotate around this lesson in the new context. And there are lots of examples of that, of course, where people take old playbooks to new scenarios and it doesn't work. That's right. That's right. I think it's, it's critical to try to extract the sort of first principles of your previous playbook, the sort of universal truths of your previous playbook, because those you can apply again and again, but the exact strategies and tactics, uh, you know, usually don't apply. Uh, the next time you're in a new place. And lastly, key lesson learned from Instacart. Yeah, Instacart, uh, you know, tremendous company, great place. It was, it, was, it was my first company where machine learning was literally critical to Instacart's success. Uh, you know, when, when Instacart had a particularly tough problem and it's a logistics-oriented company, a lot of optimizing where people go and which order they fulfill, you know, Instacart applied machine learning to solve those problems. And that gave it a lot of flexibility and a lot of power in how those problems were solved versus some more kind of traditional and more manual approaches. Um, and so it was, it was my first experience kind of seeing that in action and seeing the power of just saying we have a hard problem. Let's just have the machine learn how to solve it. So you left Instacart, what, a couple of years ago? Yep. And you ultimately decided to start another company. Talk us through the ideation process of coming up with different ideas, thinking about different things that might be interesting to you, you could be passionate about, as well as trying to actually solve a real problem in the world. And then right. through that process or through the journey of, through the idea maze, how did you end up deciding to co-found Anomalo? Yeah. Yeah. Well, my first step was actually not so much ideation. It, it was finding my co-founder. All right. I, I realized that the startup journey can be a very lonely one. Uh, and so what, what makes it work is working with people that you really like and that you respect. And so my first step was actually getting together with Jeremy, who's my co-founder now. We met at Instacart and he left a few months before me. And uh, just to know, pause for a sec, Elliot, just to yeah. jump in, because I think this is, a, this is such a fascinating pivot point in every entrepreneurial journey or juncture point rather. And we talk to our founders all the time about this, which is sometimes people start by assembling a team. You know, they, they have the sort of, they have sort of the overall aspiration or the general aspiration of I'm going to start a company. I'm not sure what type of company that's step one. That's just sort of declaring that having that self-knowledge. And then step two is I'm going to find a co-founder again, without having been attached to an idea. And then me and that co-founder or co-founders together are going to come up with an idea. And that path can certainly work. And it's the path you were on and want to hear exactly more how it unfolded, but just to, just also underscore, it's also possible. There are plenty of successful companies that get started where there's a single man or woman who decides they want to start a company, conceives, you know, 80% or 90% of an idea. And then once that idea is conceived, goes and finds a couple of co-founders who are become genuine co-founders and genuinely co-authoring of the, of the mission. Uh, and then they, and they pursue from, they go from there. And I think part of the for younger founders who may not have as much a track record as you, Elliot, it can be difficult to recruit amazing co-founders when the idea is not really defined, right? If, if, yeah. if, if, you're, if your perspective is, I just want to start a company, hey, do you want to start a company with me? And you haven't done very much in your career, it's going to be hard to get a world-class co-founder. And so we tend to see people who are earlier in their career tend to actually have to have some shape around an idea to successfully close a co-founder. Whereas folks who are more seasoned or, or have more credibility in, a, in whatever way that shows up are able to actually get somebody to leave their job or to, to pledge their allegiance 
to just the, the yet undefined new company idea. Yeah, no, of course that makes total sense. I think, you know, I was fortunate to both be, be late in my career and have that reputation. And also one thing you build up through your career is a network of people, right? So you have kind of lots of people that you can call, uh, so to speak, to, to join you uh, on your quest, which I realize not everyone uh, has available. Indeed. So you connected with Jeremy and the two of you said, we're going to start a company together. Well, we, we agreed to brainstorm ideas, right? Uh, you know, and again, we, we kind of probably had a hybrid of these two processes that you described where um, we wanted to work together. We didn't know on what, but we, we knew that we wanted an idea that we were both excited about. And so the ideation process wasn't so much an ideation process as a, as a kind of you know, synthesis process because I had maintained throughout my career, I had actually maintained a list of startup ideas. Uh, I still have a Trello uh, somewhere that has, uh, you know, my list of startup ideas. Every time I would encounter a problem or, or uh, an issue in the workplace or a consumer product, idea, I would just write it down. And so, and Jeremy had maintained a similar uh, list of his own. And so we agreed to just bring our two lists together and see uh, if there were things that resonated. Uh, and we ended up having kind of multiple sessions uh, where we went through our lists and talked through each idea on our lists. And, and we ended up with a couple uh, that we were both genuinely excited by. And, and how did you um, arrive at the, the winning idea and, and then describe, you know, give us the pitch for what it is and how it can be of service to, uh, to companies everywhere? Yeah, absolutely. So, how do we arrive at the winning idea is we, we took our top two ideas and we just started talking to people about them. Uh, you know, we started talking people to our network. We knew that no matter what we, we started out with, no matter which idea we built, you know, we were going to have to go to our network to get people to use it, to give us feedback. So it was likely best to start with an idea that our network already was receptive to, right? Because that was going to make it easier to take the next step. And so we talked to a bunch of folks and, and that's how we came up with the idea for Anomalo. And what Anomalo does is it helps you trust your data as an organization. Uh, we talked a little bit earlier in this conversation about how important it is to watch your data and understand what's going on with your product and business, especially in areas like growth. And it turns out that in this kind of modern cloud world that we're in today, every company is gathering massive amounts of data from all kinds of sources and is trying to use that data to make decisions, uh, to optimize their product, to get growth, to figure out which market to launch next. But one of the most annoying parts of actually trying to use data within organizations is that often the data is wrong. It's incomplete or it's missing things that should be there or it's out of date. It hasn't been updated. Uh, or it was great data up until yesterday when some bad code shipped and now it's missing certain pieces. By the way, Elliot, as you're talking, it reminds me of that line. Uh, what is it? Uh, it's not the things you don't know that, that hurts you. It's the things you think you know that just ain't so. That's right. That's right. It's, exactly it's, right. It's, it's like in some sense, having no data and having to be honest about that fact can be uh, better than having data that's misleading. That's right. And and very often folks don't know that their data is wrong or misleading or missing or stale or corrupted. Uh, you know, I even had an example in my Instacart days when 
we had a whole team that was making decisions off a table that hadn't been updated in six months. Uh, and they didn't know, right? They would run their query against their table and they would get an answer and they would go and follow that answer. And they, they didn't know that that table was out of date. And so they weren't getting the best answer uh, for their questions. Uh, and so Anomalo basically helps you avoid all those situations by automatically monitoring your data and letting you know when something goes wrong, when your data is out of date, when it's corrupted in some way, when something that was there before is missing. We automatically let you know, and then you can, with that full knowledge, choose to not use bad data uh, to make your decisions. And as a result, you can trust your data more. What types of companies should be using Anomalo and uh, where can folks learn more? So they can learn more at our website, anomalo.com. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-O.com. And any company that cares about data and is using data to make decisions or is using data to power machine learning models and recommendations uh, would find a lot of use uh, from Anomalo. Uh, you know, companies in the e-commerce space use Anomalo quite a bit, but also anyone who's you know, using data to make decisions and, and drive their product. Elliot Schmuckler, really appreciate your time today. Uh, delighted to have you in the Village Global Portfolio. Thank you for sharing uh, so many wonderful insights about product management and A-B testing and lessons learned from uh, such an illustrious career. Thank you for the time and the insights and for everyone listening. If you want to learn more about Anomalo, you can check out the Anomalo website or reach out to us at Village. We're happy to make the introduction directly to Elliot. Elliot, thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc. You can listen to us on the go. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. New Zealand, this is the country. I'm Jamie Mackay, Rowena Duncan, and Sam Casey joining me, kicking it off with Earth, Wind, and Fire. Very apt, 10 years on from the deadly uh, Christchurch earthquake, earthquake uh, February the 22nd, 2011. But it really all kicked off, didn't it, in September of uh, 2010? They had a huge earthquake as well. Fortunately, it was in the middle of the night, and I think we may have lost one person eventually out of that one. Um, but it was a forerunner, unfortunately, a forewarning of what was to come. So today um, we are going to remember 10 years on from that deadly quake and pay tribute and remember the 185 people who lost their life as a result of it. Uh, we're going to kick it off with Andy Thompson 
who was kick, who I was kicking around with in 2010 and 11 in Christchurch. We'll come to that in a minute. He's over there for the cricket, the T20, and I think it's rather apt that they get to celebrate in Christchurch uh, today with that uh, first of the T20 internationals against Australia. We're going to talk to some other people who were in the midst of it. Our old friend Dick Taylor. Of course, one of Christchurch's favourite sons. The earthquakes got so bad, he left town. Alan Pollard is the chief executive of Apples and Pears New Zealand. They've got some real issues. Who's going to pick our apple crop this year? And surprisingly, in teeing up this interview, I found that Alan was right in the guts of it as well. Latimer Square, looking across at the CTV building. Phil Duncan uh, on weather. Fine weather's fine, but where's the rain? There's a new white paper on regenerative agriculture. It's a buzzword these days. We'll try and catch up with the co-authors of that, Dr Gwen Grillet and Sam Lang. They're based out at Lincoln, um, so I assume I'll ask them if they were there 10 years ago. And today's panel's the Field Days panel, Peter Nation and Graham Smith. Where were they? What were they doing? What's going to happen to field days? Will there be enough accommodation? How are they going to work that one? We've got all that to do. But we'll kick off with you, Andy. And we've got you on uh, not only to talk about Christchurch 10 years on, but the announce, announce the winner of our Hokitika Wild Foods Festival promotion from last week. Good afternoon. Oh, good afternoon, yes. Uh, we do have a winner, and uh, we're really looking forward to hosting them, actually, um, courtesy of Air New Zealand and Grab a Seat. And the country. So we're bringing uh, this lady, Louise Ethorn, from Wellington, actually. So not from Darfield uh, or Springfield, as I, as I would assume you would go. So I'm going to get in earlier. She is coming from Wellington, Louise Ethorn. So uh, we can't wait to meet um, her and have her in our VIP tent at Wild Foods. We've got um, Stella, LMNOP, and Feelers playing this year. So a great music line entertainment uh, lineup, as well as um, all of the wild foods that is uh, is famous for the Wild Food Festival in Hokitika, March 13. I caught up with Dick Taylor a wee bit earlier this morning, and he wasn't available to chat live, and we'll hear what Dick's got to say up next, but we were talking about September when it all kicked off, September the 4th in the middle of the night, about half past four in the morning, and um, I mentioned to Dick that, that himself, Richard Lowe, and I went along and we hosted a a function, or I don't know what's a function, a community event in Darfield, which was probably worse affected by the September earthquakes than Christchurch itself. I think, And I think you were there. Well, there was a free lunch involved. So, of course, I was there. Yeah. <laughs> well planned. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, yeah, and it wasn't amazing to uh, drive through Darfield and see the, the tiny amount of damage, but it wasn't until you got sort of out to the epicentre and there was, we went to, remember we went to that cow shed yep. that had been completely knocked off, um, a rotary cow shed completely knocked off and they couldn't milk. Uh, and that there was one house in particular that the fault line went through. I mean, just went through. It was torn in half. And standing on that road, uh, I can't remember what it's called, Telegraph Road, and just there's that massive kink in it where you can't figure out which way it went. Did it go left or right? So, yeah, there's a permanent reminder if you're ever driving up Telegraph Road when you get to the, the big bend, well, the bend in it, which goes from one lane to the next, uh, to show you exactly where that's where the fault line was. Where were you and what were you doing on February 22, 10 years ago? Uh, I was actually in the NZME building uh, in Greymouth, the old building, the old radio house, which is unfortunately well, we're not there anymore, up on the main story. I was actually about to go and buy my daughter, Courtney, a birthday present, because it's her birthday on the 23rd, 
and uh, I was walked out of the building and this quake hit and then I wandered to Noel Emmys. I think I was going to buy her potentially a, a, an, iP- an iPod or something, can't remember. And I said to the guy, turn on the TV, there's been a massive earthquake in Christchurch. And then um, we had that, because she was at boarding school, Rangirua in Christchurch, we had that 45 minutes to an hour when we just had a blackout and as to no contact, the, you know, the, the cell towers were all down. We didn't know what was going on. And finally, uh, she got a friend who was on another network to actually text us and say that she was okay. But I jumped in the car, Jamie, and I drove across. She got evacuated out to a friend's place out in Leeston and um, went there. And i never forget driving over, seeing car after car after car just heading out of the city towards the coast. People had just gone home and abandoned or grabbed what they could, loaded up the car with mum, dad and the kids. I remember seeing one car in particular with damage. It still had bricks on the bonnet. That's that's how wow. panicked people were. And you could have driven whatever speed you liked that day. No one cared. And I remember um, getting into Christchurch, and I never actually went into the city because I went straight out to Leeds and came back, had to fuel up, pick up the horse, yada, yada, to get back to the coast the next day. But... Um, the most eerie, surreal feeling. And I do remember it was a very overcast night that night. I remember seeing the, I think it was probably the Prime Minister's plane, just or military planes just flying very low over the city, um, taking, yeah, it was just an incredible feeling and uh, quite a relief to get back to, um, back to the coast the next day and, and back to a sense of normality. Andy, it's good that Christchurch can, <clears throat> and celebrates the wrong word, but has a happy event, something that's going to be really cool this evening, the, the T20. I know you're going over there. You'd turn up at the opening of an envelope, Andy, so um, any chance to get your, your nose into a corporate trough. But I, I, I think it's be, really it's really good that, that, that there's some positive stuff happening in Christchurch 10 years on, because this, this anniversary must just haunt people. Oh, look, I think so. And, and um, I was even talking to Courtney about it last night, and she said, you know, she doesn't remember too much about it. It was so traumatic. And all she remembers is spending hours out on the field uh, of the school she was at while they were waiting to be evacuated. And, and um, she didn't go back to Christchurch. She went back and finished the year. And then the next year she said, I'm, I want to stay back on the coast. And I said, you know, she said, you weren't there. You don't know what it was like. And you can't argue with that, can you? And, and I think that's what a lot of people from Christchurch who were in it kind of feel. I'm sitting here in the Addington car park right next to AMI Stadium and, and you know that makes me sort of realise just how much has changed because I do remember one of my favourite sporting events, Jamie, was the T20 against the Australians just the, like six months before uh, and it was an yeah. amazing game I was, between I, the McCullums. I was there with you, wasn't I? Uh, probably. Did I get you tickets? And I normally no, got no, no. We would have got you a ticket. What oh, I shit. what I remember about that game is, and I spent a year in Christchurch at Lincoln College back in the early eighties, and I remember a dodgy taxi driver taking me from Lancaster Park. I said, and we'd all had a few, as you do, and we all piled into the taxi, and I said, whip us into town. The guy starts driving out towards Brighton Beach, <laughs> and I said, <laughs> and so uh, he he got. <laughs> It doesn't happen these days. Just bloody conning us, anyhow. Yeah, uh, we, yeah. So he, he didn't get a fare in the end. He got a fair rev up. That's all I can say. Hey, Andy, got to go. And congratulations to your winner. Thanks very much. Yes, Louise, Ethan, we'll we'll be in touch after the show. Well right. done. Looking forward to meeting you. No, well, indeed. How come Thompson's not getting in touch after the show? Well, oh, because he's on annual leave, Jamie. Is he? Right. So, um, 2011. Yeah, at, at 12:51, and we'll commemorate it. 
well, the show's on today, obviously, but I was sitting in here with your predecessor, Dominic George, and um, we felt it big time. Wow. And we immediately knew, because in Dunedin here, we felt the shakes. Uh, remember, there was a big one in, I'm just trying to remember when it was, when they were building the Forsyth Bar Stadium. So, so we, 09, 10. Yeah, what, yeah, but you felt them, so immediately we knew uh, the the shit had hit the fan quite literally in Christchurch. It was terrible. It was so upsetting to turn on the television and look at those dreadful scenes. Lashes, where were you? You would have been still at school, were you? Yeah, I remember across college, they were down for an inter-school. Yeah. So, they were obviously ringing home and they couldn't get a hold of anyone. So those poor boys were down in Dunedin and thinking of all their families and friends back up home. And then a lot of those Christchurch, uh, cross-college boys ended up doing two terms at Otago Boys to finish out um, whatever their 2011 year because, uh, yeah, their school was under repairs. And I was talking to my cousin, actually, he went to St. Bede's. They had to merge with the all-girls school, so they had to start school at 7 a.m., the boys That's did. That's right, two shifts, wasn't it? Mm, yeah. Finish at midday, and then the girls came in at 12.30 to 3 to 5.30. So disruptive, and for mm. people, especially in the eastern suburbs, and they were living with portaloos and liquefaction on the ground for months and months and months. And the the government, to be fair to them, Jerry Brownlee, Big Jezza led the charge on that one. Key got down there straight away. They did as re- pretty well, really. I mean, what what else can you do? But when a city's destroyed, mm. so still lots of empty spaces in Christchurch if you go around there now. And I I, I find myself getting disorientated when I wander around the city centre because when I was there and we used to hang out uh, in the square a bit as young blokes but um, you know like the landmarks are not there. Yeah it's coming right though Yeah it is coming right and you know and it will will rebuild and it will be a purpose built city but yeah lest we forget eh Nice to forget. Okay. Hey, uh, a wee bit earlier this morning, because he wasn't available between 12 and 1, I caught up with Dick Taylor. He's one of Christchurch's favourite sons. His story is up next. He is one of Christchurch's favourite sons. He was there 10 years ago to the day, right in the thick of it. His name is Dick Taylor, of course, set the Commonwealth Games alight in 1974 in the Garden City at the Friendly Games when he won the 10,000 metres. Dick, the Christchurch earthquakes took a big toll on you and you eventually left town because of it. It must have been terrible to have been there on that day, February 22nd, 2011. Yeah, it was awful because I've been there the one in September. That's still the early one, but they always said it was going to be a bigger one would follow. Uh, it was just hard to believe, um, Jamie, being in the city and and all of a sudden, you know, tw- you know, at twelve fifty one p.m. and I was at the Carlton Hotel, very familiar with you and a lot of your listeners, um, and we're drinking, having a drink outside, and I it was an eerie feeling in the air, and I said to, I'm a bit of name dropping to Gary Freeman, who's with me, and another guy from Wellington. Um, I said, I think we should go inside. It's very eerie out here, very eerie. So we went inside, and of course, bang, that hit. And where we were sitting, there was two metres of rubble. Uh, it come tumbling down. The Colton sort of fell apart. So, but then we ran out, and there's a road, and the first response, fire engines coming down, and they sort of stopped at the, well, the intersection at the Colton, and uh, I could hear the radio going. We spoke to the firemen, and they just shook their heads, and they said, uh, we don't know what we're going to find in front of us so uh, it was unbelievable to think you know an awful scary um, 
they're probably only consolation about all that we all shared it together. You know, we didn't. We thought there'd be loss of life, and sadly, we all knew someone who had that person who lost their lives, and a lot of lucky people, and a very lot of unlucky people. Had that happened at night, I don't think as many people would have been killed because of that. The CTV building falling down and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, so just scary thing. And then, of course, afterwards, the aftermath, of course, of the deaths, of course, what people going through, the near misses, people got badly injured. And then places like Lancaster Park was all over. QE2 was all over. Um, yeah, the, the whole consolation of it all, all just sunk in. What? happened to Christchurch, really. In some ways, Christchurch has never been the same again. Yeah, Kiwi 2, of course, the venue uh, for your wonderful victory in 1974. Dick, I remember uh, with the September 2010 earthquake uh, going along and doing a farmer's function in Darfield. You, me and Richard Lowe went along and uh, hosted an evening for the badly affected people in the Darfield area. And I remember when I flew up there, you drove me around... Christchurch, this is in September before the big one, although it was a big one, and gee, I couldn't get over there wasn't, there was literally not a chimney standing in the entire city, so you're dead right if that hadn't happened in the middle of the night we would have lost a lot of lives in September. Oh, very much so, it was only because of how you know, in the middle of the night and you know, I was a 11-storey apartment building right near uh, the, the Coltoners by Hagley Park and uh, when you're up 11 stories and I get an earthquake, it's an awful feeling. And my mother always said, Richard, ever an earthquake, get in the doorway. And, of course, she used to laugh at mum because I'd never going to be in an earthquake. So when it hit and I got thrown out of bed and I got in the doorway and I bawled my eyes out. And mainly because I heard the Heineken falling out of <laughs> my fridge. Um, but, I mean, that was we laugh about that. Jamie, but yeah. Look, it's taken a, a serious toll on you, and I know that because we're good mates. You eventually left town because of the earthquakes, and Christchurch was, for all intents and purposes, even though you were raised in South Canterbury, was your hometown. Oh, very much so. Um, and, you know, when I moved to Christchurch to become a part of it, when Billy Bush got me tied up in the Canterbury Sporters Club, and that's probably the best journey of my whole sporting life as being part of the Canterbury Sporters Club when I got an opportunity to meet people who are uh, personal friends of Jamie Mackay, the, the Colin Meads of this world, Nosef Benka, Patrick's and the Chris Wiley and meeting some of the greats of, of New Zealand Canterbury rugby and New Zealand rugby. Um, and that, that was a great journey. And I must admit, when the earthquake hit, I was shattered. And I just couldn't cope with it, Jamie. So, and of course, you've got to feel for everyone else when you're got a few personal problems, but which I did. Um, but then I, it sort of virtually drove me out of town, which, you know, I didn't want to do, but I did. But coming down south here, and I'm, I'm quite happy down in the deep south. Mind you, Dick, uh, just to finish on, I'm fortunate I could chat to you all day. In some ways, you're out of the frying pan and into the fire because you've moved to Wakawaiti, which is a beautiful little hamlet just north of Dunedin, and now you've got the lead in the water there to deal with. Yeah, very much so, and I think... Uh, what, what, what no one thank goodness no one has died from it, but it's not going to do a lot of people the good. And I just hope that we come out the other end uh, and everyone will learn from it. But it's sad that obviously there was problems there, but a, but a communication breakdown, appalling communication breakdown from the Dunedin City Council. Hey, Dick, look, I've got to go. Thanks for sharing some of your memories. Uh, Ten years on, it's it's a day none of us will forget, even those of us who weren't there. And let's just remember an old mate of ours we lost on Saturday, Neil Irwin from Crank Up. Neil was a good friend, did a lot for Crank Up. He was a name dropper too, like Jamie and Dick. 
Um, yeah, so dear O'Neill had some health issues and he died um, Sunday morning. Yeah, legendary uh, man behind the, the, the Edendale crank up in Southland there, Neil Irwin. Rest in peace, my friend. Hey, Dick yeah. Taylor, always good to chat. Thanks, Jamie. 27 after 12, you're with the country 10 years on from the deadly Christchurch earthquake of February 22. Uh, I recorded that interview about half an hour ago, and while it was happening, we were having a wee chat about taxi drivers. Of course, I told you my story about <coughs> the dodgy track taxi driver of about 2010 taking us out to Brighton rather than back into town. It reminds me of my honeymoon. Rowena <laughs> Dodgy taxi drivers on your honeymoon Well Jamie? no I had I was poor I was a poor farmer I had no money And uh, my new bride and I Penny went up and stayed Because we literally We bludged our way around the country We did an Andy Thompson We didn't have enough money To stay anywhere I sound terrible didn't it But we went and stayed with Penny's sister in Auckland and for a, you know, so I'm going to take you out for dinner. My new wife got to look after you. So anyhow, <laughs> uh, we, we we get in a cab and we go to this restaurant that a sister recommended, and it was twenty five or thirty bucks, quite a bit in nineteen eighty five. And anyhow, I accepted that's life in the big smoke, and we went out and we had a wonderful romantic dinner, as you do, Rowena. <laughs> or actually, you, you probably don't know what I'm talking <laughs> about there. But anyhow, so there's twenty five bucks to get there. Call a cab to get home to her sister's place. Four dollars. <laughs> well played, taxi driver. The poor old Southland Swede up in the big smoke. He had no idea. Of course, we've all got mobile phones, and you can't rip us off now. Just as well. I'm glad he saw you coming, though. Yeah. Lashes. If you ever get married, you can you can share a honeymoon story as well. Okay, I look forward to that. It'll, it'll be a brief one. We haven't even got time to talk about you raising your bat at St Andrews with Anton Leonard Brown. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad we don't have time to talk about it. Well, Jamie. we haven't got time to talk about that. Up next, Alan Pollard. Well, this could be something for your lashes. You know how you're not that busy at the moment at work? Have you ever considered heading to Hawke's Bay for a couple of months to pick apples? I think no. every year since you told yes, him that. this is just the same you know, <laughs> same game. You like to see me up to the bay. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll uh, look at opportunities uh, in Hawke's Bay next with Alan Pollard, who's the Chief Executive of Apples and Pears NZ. Alan Pollard is the Chief Executive of Apples and Pears NZ. Some real issues around who is going to pick our apple crop this season. But before we do, Alan, it is 10 years on from the tragic uh, Christchurch earthquake. You were in the middle of it. Good afternoon. Hi, Damien. Nice to talk to you again. Yes, I lived in Christchurch at the time. And when the quake struck, I was actually in a restaurant uh, adjacent to Latimer Square, uh, which I don't know if you Christchurch, that was one of the main epicenters of the quake, and uh, stepped outside the restaurant when we got evacuated to find uh, buildings all around us had collapsed and smoke and dust was in the air, and it was just a, a surreal situation. That's not a mile away from the CTV building, right? It was straight across from the yeah. CTV building, absolutely. What made you move from Christchurch? Well, actually, the, the, the earthquake in the end um, made us move. We, there were uh, thirteen or 14,000 aftershocks uh, uh, over the year or so since that earthquake, and we decided we'd literally just had enough and had to get out. So we became quake refugees and moved to the Horse Bay. Yeah, not alone there. All right, let's look at the other issue of the day from your point of view, Alan. Is how, how are we going to pick this apple crop? 
Uh, look, it's becoming a real challenge, Jamie. The the predictions that we made pre-Christmas when we submitted to the government and our labour shortage are well and truly coming true. We, we are thousands of people short from where we need them. Um, uh, obviously acknowledge the, uh, the 2,000 RSE workers coming into the country, but at the same time, there's a number that want to go home. They've been here for, you know, some over a year or more. So the net impact of that is practically zero. Um, not the backpackers around and with unemployment rates so low and with the unemployed not prepared to move around the country. They're just not available to the provincial regions. So we have a a serious labour crisis on at the moment. And let's face it, um, I don't want to be unkind to the unemployed, but picking apples is physically quite a demanding sort of job. So not just anyone could walk in off the street and be a successful apple picker. You've got to be well, you've got to jump up and down ladders, you've got to carry baskets around your neck. It can't be easy. It's not. It's a tough job and it's in all weather conditions. Uh, and so you're right, it's, it's not open for everyone to do that. Um, to be fair, you know, a number of New Zealanders that have come and have worked in the seasons have become really good permanent employees. So you know, there are, there are some that can survive it, but to be frank, it's such a hard job to do. The government seems to be labouring under the impression, no, no political pun intended, that, that this plenty of Kiwis who will take on these jobs but the reality is there's just not enough so what's going to happen to these apples will they rot on the trees or rot on the ground when they fall down well, certainly the orchardists are now um, you know, prioritising which apples they're going to harvest. So you're right, some will get left behind. Um, some may not be picked at their optimum quality, so that impacts on where we can sell them and what the price might be. Um, but the, the, the fruit still has to come off, even if we can't get to it at the, the normal harvest time. It's got to get off or we're not going to have a crop next year. So, yeah, But, you know, we're, we're now starting to think about next year. Our fate's sealed for this year. Whatever we do now really is not going to change the outcome. But we can't go through this next year. The the response from the government has to change. And a lot of these pickers are seasonal workers who move from the apple harvest, for instance, on to the kiwi fruit harvest. So I'm yes. assuming, Alan, that that industry is going to have the same sort of problems. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the 2,000 workers we had come in came in too late for the summer fruit harvest, and if it wasn't for some serious weather events, they would have faced some similar issues that we did. Um, uh, but you're right, the workers moved from the apple industry now into kiwi fruit into wine, and so those industries are very concerned about, uh, you know, the ability to access workers when they need them most. What does Damien O'Connor say when you chew his ear on this? Oh, look, he, he, he's very supportive. He, he understands the challenges. But um, I guess the, the thing is, you know, the policy settings aren't being reflected in delivering the outcomes we need to to protect these industries. You know, the Prime Minister made it very clear that, in her view, the future of New Zealand post-COVID is going to depend on the primary sector. And you can't say that and then turn off the labour tap. It just doesn't work. I know that the university students, Alan, have gone back to their various university, but what about the, the uh, school kids themselves? 15, 16, 17-year-old kids make some good pocket money in the weekends. Yeah, look, we're currently talking with um, school principals, high school principals from the Hawke's Bay to see whether we can mobilise an army of high school students after school and at weekends to try and uh, help pick the crop. And there's a, a lot of interest uh, from the schools in doing that, supported by the local councils here. And if, if we can come up with a workable solution, that's again a model we can roll out around our growing region. Just one more question, and there's no such thing as a dumb question, but I'm going to throw it at you anyhow. Uh, are apples more difficult to pick jumping up and down a ladder than kiwi fruit? Do you have to get up a ladder for kiwi fruit? And what about the grapes? I would have thought they would have been harvested mechanically. 
you know, certainly harvesting kiwi fruit can be done from ground level, whereas picking apples, you've got to climb up and down an 8 to 12 foot ladder um, with a bag, of 20 kilo bag around your waist. So it's much more physically demanding. With grapes, I know they have a lot of mechanical harvesting, but the vintage is often harvested uh, manually. But again, that's at a ground level one. So it's much harder to harvest apples than it is the other crops. Alan Pollard, thanks very much for your time. An earthquake refugee. We've heard from two of them, Dick Taylor and Alan Pollard. We've got to take a break. New uh, Rural news and sports news. Hopefully we'll have a look at that new white paper out on regenerative agriculture in today's panel, the Field Days panel. Uh, Graham Smith and Chief Executive of Field Days, Peter Nation. Uh, 21 away from one, here's the latest in rural news. The country's rural news with Cub Cadet, New Zealand's leading ride-on lawnmower brand. Visit steelfort.co.nz for your local stockists. In rural news, hundreds of people have gathered at the Christchurch Earthquake Memorial for a service there. In Taranaki, the DHB is hoping a new general practice operating out of Harwood Hospital will help them meet the primary healthcare needs of the South Taranaki community. It's the third service improvement to be implemented in the region following the new 24-7 an after-hours GP phone service and a new St John Sea and Treat service which uh, began last year. And data released today by the Real Estate Institute of New Zealand shows there were 154 more farm sales for the three months ended January 2021 than for the three months ending January 2020. Overall, 517 farm sales in the three months ending 2021 January. That is your rural news. Here's Sam Casey with Sport. Sport with AFCO, Kiwi to the bone since 1904. Yeah, no, not too much going on in sport. All eyes will turn to Hagley Oval tonight when the Black Caps host Australia for the first of five 2020s and whether or not Martin Guptill can get out um, of his bad run of form and make some runs at the top order. And just finally, Jamie, uh, Tony Fina and Max Homer are onto their second playoff hole in the Genesis Invitational in Los Angeles, California. Wouldn't it be good if... Martin Guptill could raise his bat for 100 like mm. you did at St Andrews oh, here we go. and Hamilton. Sorry. Um, we'll take a break. On the other side of it, uh, the co-authors of a new white paper on regenerative agriculture before the end of the hour today's panel, Peter Nation and Graham Smith. Ten years on from the Christchurch earthquakes and it's to Lincoln we go now to chat to Two people, they are the co-authors of a new white paper uh, setting out the pressing research priorities around regenerative agriculture. Yes, it's very much a buzzword. Let's welcome onto the country Dr Gwen, Gwen Grillet and Sam Lang. And Sam, I'm going to start with you because I think you were a Scarfie here in Dunedin 10 years ago today, but you were in the territorials, so you had an active role to play post-earthquake. Good afternoon. Yeah, Jamie. Yeah, we um, we're actually. I think it was supposed to be the biggest exercise in the military in the South Island for about a decade. A week after that quake, and um, so we're all set to go. And um, yeah, that, that every quake happened, and we ended up um, on a on a mog, as they called them, um, shipped up to shipped up to Christchurch, and did I did ten days on the security cordon in Sydney. Wow. Actually, which was my first experience in Christchurch. Yeah, it must have been um, a terrible scene to arrive on. Dr. Gwen uh, Grillet, I hope I got that right because I think there's a silent <laughs> T in there, a French accent, Gwen. You, um, were you in Christchurch 10 years ago or Lincoln 10 years ago? 
I was indeed, yes. Yes, we, we, uh, I immigrated to New Zealand um, a little bit before the earthquake. And actually, this, the earthquake and how the people of New Zealand uh, united and reacted uh, and got together to, to recover from the earthquake is actually what really uh, pushed the decision over to really stay here and make New Zealand our home. So here you go. Ten years on, you guys have written a white paper on regenerative agriculture. I'll go back to you, Sam, and we'll alternate on this one. It's a bit of a buzzword at the moment. What does it actually mean? Is this is this just a branding exercise? I'm playing devil's advocate here. Yeah, um, I think uh, it's quite clear from lots of the conversation that it means lots of different things to lots of different people. Um, and I suppose what we've tried to do is uh, not get caught up in um, you know, debating the term or the label, or whatever, and actually trying to drill down into what it actually means to people. So we've actually looked at it from, and you know, in four different ways. We looked at it, you know, when people talk about regenerative agriculture, what outcomes are they talking about? You know, what do they want to achieve from the landscape or their businesses or their lives? Um, you know, what are the principles that New Zealand farmers are using when they're thinking about regenerative systems? Uh, what are the practices that they're using? Uh, and there's lots of crossover in both of those between what you might call what we know as mainstream practices and some of the more novel um, ones that some of the regenerative farmers are using. And uh, finally, you know, this concept of a regenerative mindset and what does that mean? So we've, so we've looked at all that in the white paper. So Gwen, or Dr Gwen, a lot of people would say that regenerative, or the sceptics would say that already New Zealand farmers are largely practising regenerative agriculture anyway. Um, yes, that is true. This, this is uh, some of the things that are being discussed and uh, talked about, uh, especially a lot in the media and among some of the academic circles. And there, is no, there isn't such thing as um, regenerative farming system and non-regenerative farming system. And I think that's maybe where uh, the debate has uh, been focused and crystallised. And actually, I, I feel... And this is my personal opinion, but it's a little bit distracting from uh, asking the, the, the question that would help us move forward, which is, OK, how can we how can we design research to get those data instead of uh, arguing about we are already regenerative, we are not? Because it's a groundswell movement. It's, uh, it's rising in New Zealand. It's also global. Uh, it might offer some opportunity for New Zealand in terms of uh, gaining access to premium or niche markets. Um, how can we how can we own that narrative and how can we use that as an opportunity? Well, I want to talk about some of the narrative in this report. I'll go back to you, Sam. I'm a bit of a, a, a sceptic, to be honest, not about regenerative agriculture because I think there's some very smart people practising it, but some of the narrative in your report, um, failure is part of the journey, open and flexible toolbox, farmer <laughs> empowerment and mindset, and I think, is that gobbledygook? With that particular exercise you're referring to there, we... We got a bunch of farmers from um, the pastoral, arable, and viticulture sectors on on some different calls and asked them effectively what are the what are the principles that you know define how you or support how you actually um, farm at the moment. And those were kind of yeah. I mean, you always got to be careful with labels, but also we've got to try and capture these things succinctly. So those kind of things captured. You know, what, what the farmers were telling us, which is, uh, you think about, you know, questioning everything, it's actually, you know, it's this kind of practice of always assuming that you might not be right, which is really just a, you know, just an innovation mindset in my view. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Gwen. Uh, it is 11 away from one. We'll be back in less than two minutes to commemorate nine away from one ten years ago today. 
Nine away from one, 12.51, 10 years on. Let's take a moment. One hundred and eighty-five people lost their lives as a result of that earthquake, uh, lest we forget. Right, today's panel to wrap the show, the Field Days panel, Chief Executive Peter Nation and a board member, Graham Smith. Um, Graham, I'll start with you. Where were you and what were you doing ten years ago today when this happened? Well, funnily, no, not funny at all. Um, I was sitting with two of your bosses Jamie, buddy, signing your contract as as my role in balance was the sponsor of the farming show in those days, and we were in a restaurant in um, Taronga or Mount Monganui, and I distinctly remember Lee Piper's phone ringing, and it was the uh, NZME or Radio Network in the day's office from Christchurch ringing him to tell him about it, and, and I can distinctly remember his words saying, "What do you mean it's gone?" And they were referring to the CTV building, which obviously where you know the majority of the lives were lost. So a very spine-chilling moment at the time. There wasn't enough zeros in that contract, Smithy. I'm blaming you. <laughs> yeah. uh, Peter Nation, Chief Executive of Field Days. I take it you were up in Hamilton, were you? Um, I think I was actually on an international flight flying to America. Oh, well, and, you, um, you wouldn't have felt it, no. Well, no, it all sort of happened while I was in the air. And, of course, I got to where I was going, and then I started getting the messages from the family and friends and news and all that sort of thing and like everyone it was quite unbelievable because I guess in our lifetime Jamie we haven't lived through an earthquake of that size, our, our parents and grandparents did through Napier etc so it was quite a bit to comprehend I think Indeed it was um, Let's have a look at field days um, God willing they will go ahead this year after being uh, postponed or cancelled last year Peter but you guys and Smithy included who's on the board have got a bit of a challenge where is everyone going to stay? Um, yeah so we've got a bit of a challenge but we've you know like all the Kiwis come up with a bit of innovation so we've put in a we'll be putting in a 350 campervan village at Portland's um, Similarly for exhibitors initially, but for people visiting as well if they need to. So that's going to take up some of that, that shortage. Um, and if we have to and we get enough demand, we've got a contingency to build an extra one. So we're thinking through all those things, Jamie. There's enough challenge in putting a big event together now. And, you know, accommodation is just another one they're throwing at us. Well, Graham Smith, you'll make a fortune out of that lovely little rental you've got going in Hamilton there. Absolutely, it's already rented out, mate. So, uh, and I think I've organised your accommodation as well. Yes, so, you have. You, you do a great yeah. job. You should be <laughs> an accommodation right. officer. Exactly. Put a, put on your drug detection agency hat. Uh, of course, you're uh, the GM of the Waikato Coromandel Drug Detection Agency. How's business? Are, are people still imbibing? Are people still inhaling? Oh well, we we you know we work with uh, all sorts of businesses and all sorts of uh, parts of society. So you know, there's a a percentage of people that uh, they don't pass, pass the test, but the majority of people do. Uh, you know, we focus on the education, all that sort of stuff, making sure people are aware of the risks out of it, but I don't think it's ever going to go away. And some of the stuff we look at is, you know, obviously legal, um, prescription, medication, alcohol, all those sort of things. So 
uh, it's something that's never going to go away. We've just got to keep on top of it and educate people why we do it for safety. Uh, Peter Nation, based out of uh, out of Hamilton there, is um, understanding that Waikato's starting to get a bit dry? Uh, yes, it is starting to get a bit dry. Um, people are starting to talk about it, and you can actually see it when you're driving around. And, and my silage indicator at home, when I'm selling silage, which I do every year, I'm starting to get demand again. So it's telling me that um, people are starting to think about getting supplementary feed. Smithy, how's, how's, how's Bay of Plenty looking? Oh, I've been around the North Island in the last couple of weeks, and yesterday uh, drove home from Auckland through the back of um, Maramarua down state, top of State Highway 2, which always burns off pretty quickly anyway. And I mean, that's I looked at the golf course, and the, the greens are brown. Um, Bay of Plenty's dry. We had a bit of rain about a week or so ago, but certainly not enough to. Uh, to get it out of that um, desperate situation. But, yes, I was in the Hawke's Bay last week as well. Very, very dry everywhere. All right, lads, we've got a minute to, we've got a minute to kill. Anything you want to raise? Oh, Don't all jump at once. Don't all jump at once. Have, I still haven't cracked 100. I, I did crack 100, <laughs> but not under it the other day, Jamie. So that investment in those golf clubs hasn't paid off yet. Oh, you got something in yeah, common with Lash. Is he's shot 100 at St Andrews, <laughs> which is uh, in, in Hamilton. Yeah, now. but I think, uh, Smither, you sold your A2 shares at the right time because yeah. they dipped down <laughs> below $11 after you got rid of them. So those golf <laughs> clubs weren't so bad after all, my friends. Peter Nation, are you, are you a golfer or have, you, or have you got too much common sense? It's a, uh, it's no, a mentally brutal game. I used to be a golfer. I, I played off sort of an early 20. Um, but I would add for you golfers, uh, Jamie and others that are listening, we've got a brand new international golf course opening right next to Mystery Creek in September. So oh, no. Playing. In September. There we go. We're in playing September. a bit of September. What yeah. is that one called? Um, it's names to be released. It was the old Hill course. It's been totally redesigned and built by the guy that built the um, hill in Monica. Wow. And it's been um, designed by Full Carterangi. It's going to be an international. Oh, well, that, well, guess what we're doing at Field Days? Uh, Graham Smith, Peter Nation, the Field Days panel, wrapping it today, <coughs> 10 years on. From the deadly Christchurch earthquake, we will catch you back tomorrow. Keep listening to our weekly episodes to find out more. doesn't have to stop here if you have any questions suggestions or feedback head over right now to twitter and facebook and like share and get involved join us next time Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.